Hello and welcome to The Giant Pod with me, your host, Andy Rintmore. My guest this week is Rachel Hockey. She is a production manager extraordinaire across the uh, global music and live events industry. She's also the head of uh, YPN, which is the Youth Production Network. We talk about booking her perfect summer uh, of festivals and uh, and gigs to work at. We talk about her start in the underground rave and house scene. Uh, touring and putting on events way before uh, events management and production managers and things like that were officially titles within the music industry. We talk about her place as a woman within the music industry and women's place within the music industry and the live events industry. We talk about her work on the legendary Led Zeppelin reunion that happened uh, 2007. Uh, The first inception of uh, the Youth Production Network pulling together crews of youth from uh, the Soweto Township in South Africa to pull off a live sporting event live stream. Uh, We talk about our experiences together. As I've said before, I have a lot of love and respect and admiration for Rachel. The things that she talks about within this podcast, the the challenges, technical and social uh, challenges um, to pull off the things that she's pulled off in her life have, uh, it's just absolutely extraordinary. There are mountains that I I feel she's had to move to do the things that she's done and she doesn't seem to even blink in the face of them Um, many people would cower away and and never achieve these things but she just seems to to just get things done and uh, have an awful lot of time and respect for that so here it is it's a great chat it's me Andy Rintmore Rachel Hockey the giant pod have fun here it is sharpness it's all good yeah now nice round it up a little bit yes so uh we've just done a bit about politics and whatnot but let's get into the let's get into what why you're here let's talk about your crazy life and and career i will say career up until well some of the career up until last year um but there's obviously you've got new irons in the fire now as you i, I suspect you always have a few in the fire don't you um so where does it begin for you? Well, I guess, um, you know, pe- people always say to me, how did you get to do what you do? You yeah. know, that classic question. And to be honest, it's a, an extremely long story because you know, <laughs> it's really, <laughs> yeah, it's just really the journey of your life, really. And I would, I'd say the short answer is, is that I've always just followed my gut and, and essentially kind of followed my heart, really. I mean, I grew up, in a you know a not not a very wealthy family in any way you know we we were sort of had very minimal uh, resources growing up and I was also the oldest of six kids so from very young age I was you know responsible and you know looking after crew so to speak and I always say this is why I was you know that's really my training of why I'm a production manager now yeah. <laughs> was that early you know, the family upbringing, really. Um, And when I, I was very independent for a very young age, you know, I was living independently from when I was about 16, really. And, you know, was studying, you know, but at the same time, 
going to festivals, loved festivals, you know, from really young. And I guess my first job at festivals was um, working for Lulu's Cafe, um, <laughs> which is why I'm actually living here in Froome, to be honest, you know, because it was the original festival family, you know, serving chips in the cafe. And I suppose that was where my, you know, first connection with any kind of production crew or anything like that was, was through the festivals, really. And also, I'm, you know, I'm 46 now, and I'm really the last generation, I'm in the crossover generation that is old enough to remember what it was like before the internet, but was young enough still when the internet came in, that we also had you know, youth with the internet, you know, as well. Yeah. And so that precious time that we had, which I'm still very proud to be part of when I was in my late teens, you know, very early 20s, was fully offline. Yeah. <laughs> we all were. It was the era of all of the, it was the free rave and the party era, you know, and all of the, you know, we were, no one could ever find us. <laughs> we were just <laughs> off. You could literally drive off in a van into the countryside somewhere with a, you know, PA in the back, a couple of bass bins and just go for it, you know. And that really was our our history, our upbringing. We came from a culture of, you know, everyone would go out, they would be led completely by passionate. No one had any money. You know, it wasn't money driven at all. It was total passion for being together, for the music, you know. And there was that sense of everyone just used to bring something, whatever it was, you know, all sorts of tap really together. <laughs> <laughs> and together we'd you you know, we'd make this space, you know, get make the sound system, make the gathering, you know, the basic lighting and stuff like that. And really that was our 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 roots of making stuff out of nothing, you know, um, and the sense of so I didn't know what the word production was for years, to be honest. It wasn't even on my radar. Um, it was always that sense of bringing everyone together and creating something together that I really connected with. So you you were all production managers before you knew that that was even a thing, really? Yeah, it, it's where they all came from. It's where all of the original uh, technical design for lighting, for uh, show effects, you know, for sound systems came from those early days um, because we literally we were making stuff up. We're literally making it up out of bits of stuff out of the garage or, yeah. you know, from <laughs> wherever. We, we, we were really hanging around. It was around sound systems, you know, because even the venues weren't really there. And club nights even at that point, that wasn't really our focus. It was around sound systems. So if you, you, you were with a crew that was connected to a sound system, so wherever the sound system was... That's where you, you know, you'd go and set up or you were part of that, you know, gig or that rave or whatever. Sounds very, uh, it's very DIY punk rock in in a way. Totally. It's just the other side of the coin, isn't it? Yeah, that's um, right. Do you think there's something, There's a, do you think it's the magic of youth that does that? It's something, it's definitely something about being young and carefree that that produces community and and projects and adventure like that isn't it absolutely that's what's you know really driven my support of youth communities all over the world really because although you could say we, it was also to do with specifically our time you know exactly what we had available then and what was going on in the world as well you know um you know we were literally developing dance music 
house yeah. music around that time, you know. But it's the it's the underground, as I call it, it's the youth underground. Yeah. Every single generation has an underground and will always do, you know, way into the future and and happened way into the past as well. Mm. Stuff that the grown-ups don't know about, uh, where they don't know where you are, yeah. and uh, language, you know, music, all sorts of the stuff that the grown-ups don't know about. That that's driven by that passion and naivety. In, in a, you know, with all, you know, saying in a nice way, but that that great naivety that you have when you're much younger. Yeah, fearlessness. That's um. I mean, people listening right now can't see the massive grin on my face that 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 whole little speech she just uh gave me it's just when you you said and we'll always be an underground Do you know I, mean? I was like yes yes um yeah. i love it i love it so much do you think that the the hedonism and the escape of these raves of the house music of this scene that you were in do you think this is something you were drawn to because growing up you had so much responsibility and you had, and I'm not trying to say your childhood was stolen or something like that. That's not what I'm getting at. You may think it was, I don't know, but that's not what I'm saying. But, but an element of, okay, I've done, I've done my duties now. I've done my responsibilities, and here is this sort of like carnival or crew of people, this little band that I can join and I can just let loose a little bit and just experience some youth before you know before adulthood comes knocking because you've done you've quite fairly it's fair to say you've done you've raised some kids there didn't you so in a sense yes absolutely and and definitely I think partly that would have influenced it you know and the sense of breaking free so to speak yeah mixed in with being a teenager you know and that natural thing that every generation has of wanting to break free and bust on out, you know. And we were basically, you know, we really were the kids that ran away to join the circus, you yeah. know. Anyone that was uh, connected with bands or performances or gigs or anything like that, literally we were like the, you know, considered like the filthy gypsies of the generation, <laughs> you know. It was like, <laughs> you know, no grown-ups possibly understood what the hell it was we were doing, you know. And yeah. you'd have the sort of, you know, go and get a proper job type echoing in your ears, around that um and people didn't even understand the lifestyle which you know and i guess they were right we did live under hedges at that point <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's you great know. Yeah. um but yeah it's been that sense of i guess that sense of freedom but I, but i also do think that is that's connected to the youth underground that is born of every single generation and of course that will look different depending on what you know the world is the technology that's around and all of that but i think that feeling always is there yeah i I mean i was very much the same as soon as i found out that you know if you got good enough at playing drums um or something that you liked like a guitar or whatever um if you were good enough you could go and get in a van with your best mates and you didn't have to um do any of this real world stuff you could and it and it's sixteen you could go literally like you said, join the circus, you could go out never not come back for six months I mean I was more than willing to do that it's you know fifteen or whatever I was like, take me away, let's go now, yeah, let's do absolutely. it absolutely I'm not gonna miss anybody 
Um, I still feel that to a degree. I do still feel that. I mean, that last this. I mean, last year in 2020, there's no gigs, no touring, no nothing, no nothing. Double negative there. I definitely there were moments in the, especially in the summer, where it was just because I've just been so used to spending time in the summer in Europe, seeing new places with with your yeah. best ba- with your best mates, doing this, crafting this this thing that you're doing and, and having the best time. And there was moments in the summer where I was just like, get me out of here. I have wonderlust. Yeah. I have to do this. Yeah. But yeah. it's uh, Absolutely. That sense of movement. And also because that really lent to a life of traveling, you know, I've traveled the world now, you know, and I sat here in my office and I've got, you can't quite see it from there, but I've got a big map on the wall that I've pretty much looked at every day for about the last 10 years, as I can say, in this office. But I've travelled all, all over the world, and really I guess it's come from that um, original, that sense of freedom, that sense of moving, and also that sense of finding family as well in your crew. You know, that sense of you can set up anywhere. It can be the back of a van, it can be under stage, it can be in a tree somewhere, under a bush or anywhere that sense of you know when you build a crew fire and you're around a crew fire you can find that sense of home wherever you are in the world you know and that sense of belonging I guess yeah and I guess that the definition of home in that regard is within your comrades and and also within your role that you carve out and this is another thing as well is people we're you know we're it's tribalism we're looking for that place in the world where, um, and everyone wants it, and whether we find it or not it, it is a different matter, but everyone wants to be the person that does that thing and does that thing really well and can't be replaced in that thing and is loved and respected and admired for doing that thing. I think that's such a basic human thing. And I, that's part of why, why I loved the idea about being in a band is, that you, you know, you, you have your thing that you do, that you bring to the table and if you do it well and you bring enough creativity or whatever, then you know that's that becomes your thing and you know you know who you are then. And I guess that's part of it as well when you're a teenager, is you don't know who you are. You're trying no. to figure out who you are and where your place is. And so yeah, yeah, I, I totally feel that vibe. It's the same thing rock and roll, house music, raves, whatever, like they're the same it's all the same thing, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. It's the same exactly. It's all born from the same roots, really. Yeah. And it and it's that that same culture that was then very much connected to the travelling culture. Because imagine when I was in my late teens, very early twenties, on the cusp of the internet coming out. When you went travelling in those days, I mean, you literally went. That was it. Yeah. No one heard from you for months. Yeah. And it, you were like, there was no way of getting hold of you. That was literally it. And the most you would have is, you know, you'd have these like post box. Uh, places in cities where you'd like rent a little box, you know, and someone could, it was like a PO box, like an old school version of a PO box. Right. And people could send letters to you, you know, to like whatever city it was, wherever the country was. And there'd always be that excitement of when you'd been off, you know, wherever it was you'd been around and you'd go back through the city and see if you had any post waiting for you, (laughs) you know. (laughs) That's great. And, I and guess, that was the only way. So yeah. it was a completely, it really was when you when we went out 
even you know even if you were in at home or going out with a crew of your mates to go and set up a rave somewhere or you know whatever you really were fully off grid wherever you were so all of those original people who ran those crews who people like my very good friend Susie Carlino for example is a, she's same age as me she she used to be part of spiral tribe you know hanging around and she used to be the one to say, hey, Susie, can you make it look good? You know, she'd have a bit of old sheet and a something or other, <laughs> light or whatever, hung in the trees, you know. And she's since now um, run her, you know, her company, Creative Draping, for 20 years now. And, that's, and that, was, that was from being in the back of a huge, you know, big, uh, you know, places that with no money of making it look good yeah. and setting out for raves and stuff. So all those people that started in those crews then naturally became part of the festivals. You know, Lost Vagueness was a classic one, which then became Shangri-La at Glastonbury Festival, which you'll know very well. Yeah. That whole Shangri-La area. They were a free party crew originally, um, you know, the, before it was the Lost Vagueness crew. They used to park up outside the fence in Glastonbury every year. And they just sat up in a random field up there and had their own thing going on. And as, you know, the fences came in and the rules and all the rest of it came in, basically Michael Evis loved them, you know, because it was always a great setup, but purely legal, completely outside. But he loved it so much. He was like, guys, you know, here's a budget, here's a field, do a thing. And that's how there, that's how that whole area, you know, opened up. And now Shangri-La is probably one, other than the pyramid stage, is one of the most iconic parts of the festival. Yeah. I couldn't imagine a Glastonbury without the conversation of, all right, which night are we going to Shangri-La? Oh, yeah. I don't know, because if we don't go tonight, you'll be queuing outside of it until 5am. And we've done that. We've got caught in that, knowing that we've got a shift the next morning and that we've got to deal with yeah. pissing, moaning volunteers or whatever the next day. Yeah. <laughs> Can't handle their substances. And you get caught in Shangri-La queue. That's it. It's, you, you're done. You know what kind of mood you're going to be in in the morning. That's right. It's Yeah, yeah fantastic. I was going to ask you, actually, how you transition from this grassroots DIY. And I, yeah, like, like like naive, there's a naivety, isn't it? Because you don't know at this point that you're sowing the seeds for something that's going to become a very legitimate, important part of mainstream live music culture. So at what point does that morph into um, the moment where you go, this is actually my career now. This is what I do. This is a, a role that we've created roles for ourselves. Or my um, my very first club gig <laughs> was working with a, a couple of mates who were DJs, you know, and I was like the promoter. <laughs> <laughs> it's like three of us, and a classic thing because uh, I grew up in London, you know, when I you know through this time, and was that you would you'd have no money yourself, but you go and speak to a pub like a local pub and say, listen, can I put a night on? You take the bar, you know, it's obviously great for them, and we'll take the door. And that's how we started our first venues, really, you know, of having any kind of like, you know, and we'd have DJs, um, you know, and you just invite all your mates. You'd have some sort of back room or a dance floor or some sort of area within the pub that would be your kind of club space, if you like. And obviously it worked well for the for the pubs because it brought extra people in. 
and you know give give them a good bar at the weekends and it was a way of putting on nights mm. with no money you know so started doing that and i lived in south london for about 10 15 years in fact um a whole period of time where there was a huge era of all of these different pub gigs popped up really uh, well, I obviously was aware more of the ones around South London, so around Brixton, up Brixton Hill, um, in so, sort of into Stretton, but really Brixton Hill was a big um, sort of melting pot for a number of these. And we'd all gig. All of us would know each other. It was like a circuit, really, of different bands and DJs. And that really was a huge... Um, it was almost like a huge sort of, uh, you know... G- community really um from which many very very well-known people came so there's loads of people like basement jacks for example so simon and felix that run basement jacks they ran a night called rooty um they were all part of the same bands all of us were playing in or nights that were going on maxi jazz is another one um you know sunday best and best of all you know rob debank you know for example and the art and his original sunday best sessions which used to be at the um, Tea Rooms des Artistes in Clapham, you know, every Sunday, the graveyard shift on a Sunday once you've been out for three or four days. And, uh, you know, you sort of end up um, chilling out there. But that's but they were like literally communities, actually, that grew. So that was the transition from going, you know, to, to a rave or, or, or starting a little club night to then naturally being part of these communities that were then running these festivals. And through the, you know, the festivals went on for a while. And I remember there was a point where it was like they were in decline, actually, at one right. point when I was really getting into them. And I just did them because I loved them, you know. So I just, you know, it was just my crew, my friends and what I loved doing. And I remember thinking, you know, am I going a bit mad here? Am I getting into something that's literally on its way out? Right. You know, it really was. There was nothing there. And then I would say in the maybe like the noughties, early the noughties, around the millennium time, maybe slightly earlier, around that time is where you then got the first brands that actually experiential marketing became a thing. And the very first brands, and you had the original ones like the Strongbow Rooms, for example, or Orange, the phone people were one of the earliest ones where they would sponsor an area, a backstage area, you know, and give loads of free originally we were like yeah they're amazing you get loads of free stuff you know yeah like drinks and bags and you know or do- the dr martin's tent or whatever and you get free dr martin's or <laughs> and and that was but that was the 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 evolution into the festivals that people know now right. where it effectively became commercialized um over that time and and then that's where you know the the sponsored events, you know, and and the and the and the and the communities, I guess, changed. And sadly, a lot of those original grassroots, you know, early communities then actually got bought out, you know, along the way. Like Bestival, for example, or, or not Bestival, like um, the Big Chill is a is a good example of that. I always just assumed that. Um, I just assumed that they were someone saying, okay, Glastery makes a lot of money. Let's do our own. But it was far more no. organic and pure than that. That's right. All of the original, in fact, all of the f- festivals came from that organic roots 
you know, way, that background like that, all of them did. And it was only later as, you know, there was the idea of this commercialization of the festivals that then it morphed into something different. Right. And, you know, and you still see examples of the very, you know, we all know tiny, well, up until last year, obviously, very tiny weenie festivals that you might know that still are, you know, you know, very, very small ones that are just still in a couple of fields somewhere or something. And still at that point where virtually everybody knows everybody at that festival, yeah. you know, because it has started from a, a, a group of friends, yeah. actually, and a little crew that have just invited their friends and their friends and their friends, so to speak. So that's the original history of festivals, which lots of the youth crew now don't understand that background, you know, of how you know, how we got to where we, we are. Yeah. It's um, always wild every year once when uh, when we're showing or you're showing a new batch of, of volunteers around the festival. I remember one year specifically, we, we went to a couple of, of the big stages at Glastonbury and you were like, oh, this is so-and-so. He's the, uh, he's the stage manager or whatever. And then they're like, all right, Andy. And I'm like, bloody hell. <laughs> like, it's strange how, because Froome is just so, so full of, this town is just so full of people in that yeah. industry. But it was just, I was so, like, you knew everyone. And then I ended up, not, but I didn't know them through industry stuff. I just knew them from my, my day job and being in Froome. But it was crazy yes. how, how small the world is. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty mad. So, okay, so you've done you've because we've got so much to talk about. You've done that um, that whole grassrootsy thing, and at some point, you plan yourself a perfect summer. And I want to touch on this perfect summer story that you told me uh, a year or two ago. No, no, maybe more than that. Um, tell me about this perfect summer that you planned out because it sounds like quite an epic. Um, Thing. And then I want to get into your arena work and um, Led Zeppelin. Uh, so what I did is basically I looked on, um, we did have a, you know, there was a, a, a site still now called eFestivals, which had just started, which is like a sort of di- a directory of all the different festivals that happened. You know, you could look up different bands when they were playing at venues, you know, stuff like that. And I literally put together... If you could plan your dream summer and literally start in, you know, which for us obviously runs from May to September, roughly, for the season. And, you know, if you had no holds barred and you could work on whatever you wanted, what would be your dream summer? And I would plan it, but based on real gigs. So not just a big fantasy thing, but real stuff that was going on. So I'd research it. So it might be, you know, going from a certain festival straight to another one, to another one that that was in happening. Or it could be including if there was, you know, favourite artists that were playing at an arena show somewhere or something, be like working on that. And I'd literally put together that list of all those dates across the summer, just think, oh my God, imagine if you worked on all of that together, be like the dream summer. And I literally put my CV together and I sent it off to all of them. Why not? <laughs> and that's where I started. And that and and in fact at that point, even though I had been to Glastonbury through the cafe work before, I didn't know any of the Glastonbury production people, you know, or the people up at the farm or anything like that. And I literally that summer, one of my things was Glastonbury Festival, you know, it was part of my dream summer. 
And I sent my CV literally to info at glastonbyfestivals.co.uk. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, I mean, most of them were infos at. I didn't know anybody, you know, yeah. really. And I literally sent it to that thinking, wow, you know, it's going to end up in the bo- under a hedge somewhere or in a bin or something like that. You know, no one's ever going to look at it. But lo and behold, two weeks later, I got a call out the blue saying, hey, we're looking for someone. Can you come and work on site for four weeks in a caravan? And, you know, within about 10 seconds, I was there. Yeah. Ready to go. <laughs> yeah. And so that's how I started to build my, you know, to, to, to build my year, I guess, and started to connect with the bands, the festivals and, you know, the different crews that I wanted to work with. And I guess from there, you go, you do four weeks at Glastonbury, maybe you've done a week or so prior somewhere else. And then you go down the road and maybe towards the end of the summer, you're at a different festival and you go, oh, what's up? And you start to see how small this world is. And you start to see the same volunteers, the same production crews, the same bands, the same roadies. And same, then you, market same, yeah, market same market traders. Same market traders, the, the crew staff, the, fence, the fencing crew. Exactly. Same big tops. Right. Yeah. <laughs> same stages. <laughs> and so yeah. from that, you develop a network and a reputation and then people go oh i need i need someone i need one person to do this and then they go oh let's they get rachel she was a good hang because a lot of it's going to be hangability as well and being cool 100 yeah Yeah. being cool under pressure um yeah and you'll get the job because a lot of these people just want cool people around don't they mostly and then worry about right. things after it. <laughs> you can say, it, I still say that now, it, you know, obviously it's fantastic to know certain, you know, have certain technical skills and know how to operate certain desks or, you know, whatever it is from there. But the most important thing still now is actually the person themselves. So it's the character of who you are. And especially when you're working in live events and when you're talking about festivals, arena shows or anything like that, it's hard work, do you know what I mean? And you're going to go through every emotion in the book, the whole range from pure, amazing, oh my God, lifetime, side of stage moment, ecstasy, you know, never forget, to absolute despair (laughs) and pure (laughs) tiredness and frustration you know and anger and all of the rest of it oh i know and when you you know we all know this one right and so it's the people that you work with and it's the person who's um you know like yourself andy you know where we've all been stuck with things um you know gritty work at certain points you know that just needs to be done because the whole point is is that the show must go on Mm. And without getting the, you know, the boxes loaded in time into the back of the truck, you know, that that can't load out properly. And then it can't, you know, to allow the next band to load in on time or or to do all that washing up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> backstage of how important that washing up is, yeah. you know, because you're literally fueling the people who are fueling the artists to make the show, yeah. you know. So, yeah. So I want to fast forward. So you end up doing a bunch of arena shows and that, I guess... And the off season of the festival stuff, you do arenas. You're in charge of uh, two or three hundred crew at a time, and that is something you've developed through years of paying your dues in the, the in the underground, and then in the 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 newly legitimate established um, festival world. Let's say, um, 
you mentioned Led Zeppelin to me the other night when we were having a little catch up. Tell me about Led yeah. Zeppelin. So, well, along my way of, you know, like I say, working for, you know, different crews and things like that, um, I met an amazing girl who still to this day opened so many doors for me called Jo Little, absolute warrior queen, as I call her. And she was out, there was so few of us girls, you know, on, on site anywhere that we all knew each other by name. There's actually about five or six across the whole industry or something. Um, she had a call when I was with her um, from someone who said, hey, we're looking for a production assistant for this pro- for some project. Mm. And she said, well, I'm sat next to a girl, you know, right here, who's amazing. And, you know, I'm putting her forward, you know, for this. And put the phone down, and then I and she said, you know, that basically there's a friend of mine called Jim Baggett, um, who is probably one of the best production managers in the world, which I didn't know at the time. Uh, her friend, who was looking for a production assistant, and I said, well, what's the project? And she said, oh, I've got no idea, but it doesn't matter. Whatever it is he's working on, it's always amazing. Like, just go, go and see. I went into town. I was supposed to go to this office and, you know, just off Oxford Street somewhere for this sort of interview, whatever, with him to meet him. And long story short, found myself in a room with him and Harvey Goldsmith. And and basically... <laughs> the big fish. That's the right. The biggest fish. Yeah. And <laughs> turned out that the, the job the product that he needed the production assistant for, which was working with Jim, um, was... The well, at that time, it was the biggest marketing experiential show that ever happened in history, <laughs> and it was the Nokia New Year's Eve project. So it was five countries, five huge gigs in five different countries, all at the same time. And this is 2006 at this point, 2006 into 2007, New Year's Eve. So you can see how long ago it was, and it was a huge live streamed thing, and they needed an assistant for Jim. So I ended up working on that with him and then worked with him on, it was through working with him and Harvey Goldsmith that I then worked on, I was lucky enough to work on some really iconic gigs, um, including Pavarotti in the desert, in the middle of Petra in Jordan. With a a huge um, (laughs) 75-piece orchestra in the middle of a Bedouin camp, you know. And one of the gigs and, and, and the World Cup kickoff concert in South Africa, you know, in 2010, just before that, one of the gigs was Led Zeppelin. So it was the, it was, well, it, it wasn't Led Zeppelin. It was actually a tribute concert to Armand Erdogan, right? you know, um, of Atlantic Records, who'd passed away. And it was a big tribute concert at the O2. Um, there was two halves to the concert and they had essentially it was like everybody else i mean imagine the range of musicians was just Staggering. phenomenal i mean yeah. absolutely from benny king to like you know i mean just bill wyman and just it just went on and on and on all these artists so yeah. they were all squished into the first half and then there was an, an interval and basically the second half was the a reunion a one off reunion of led zeppelin <laughs> so of course everyone was just calling it the led zeppelin show yeah because it so, was. <laughs> yeah. So oh, we man. worked with them. And in a nutshell, we had to set up the, there was two weeks rehearsals. So we had one week, which was just pure technical rehearsals. Um, and we had a, 
it was almost like a hundred meter stealth screen. I mean, it was enormous, this huge technical stealth screen setup that we used on there. And this great big technical um, rehearsal that needed to happen. And then the second week, the band joined in. So it was like the live band rehearsals in, you know, the rehearsal. So we've set everything up and, you know, we're supposed to be in Elstree Film Studios to do this and the big Studio One, massive, great big, you know, space, considering it's an arena show set up that you're doing and all that. And we've got everything organised and I'm working with Jim. We've booked it all in everything. And then suddenly Jim gets this call a few days before we're about to start all of this and just sort of goes, um, hello, stop, worry, sorry, pardon. <laughs> and it turned out that Jimmy Page had broken his little finger uh, and so we were, so we had to cancel everything and change it all. Luckily, it was actually only to two or three weeks later. It right. wasn't like it, luckily it was it was all right. So two or three weeks later. So what it meant was the first week we could stay in Elstree in this massive place. Yeah. But the second week, the only place we could find that was even available at that time was Shepperton Studios, which is a way smaller. I mean, tiny, you know, compared right. to the set we were fitting in. But we had no choice, so we just had to do that. So we basically fit this squeezed, this huge arena set into this relatively small studio room. So it was intense. Mm. <laughs> you know, it was like laser shows in there and this huge <laughs> LED screen and just all of it going on in there. And that's where Led Zeppelin joined us. And so we had the band in every day oh my and we were God. playing. And on the Wednesday, so the, the big O2 gig was on the, I think, a Saturday or was it a Sunday? It was at the weekend. But the Wednesday before was actually the most iconic night that all of us talk about that we're working on that gig, even more than the gig itself. Right. Because it was the full band run through. You know, it was literally, it was going to be a top to bottom as we were as we were going to perform so it's it, your personal private everybody gig. playing right and yeah. so we clearly i was made sure i'd done everything i need to do because it's like <laughs> i am going to be in there you know there's nowhere else <laughs> i'm going to be we had all the security everything locked down and all the rest of it because it was all you know undercover we weren't allowed to tell anybody where we were and all this stuff and 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 they started the the you know the the dress rehearsal and there was 30 of us in that room, in that small studio. I'll, I'll never forget it in my life, yeah. you know, and it was the full dress rehearsal. So it was literally the lasers. It was, the, it was everything there. Yeah. With just 30 of us together. And I always remember, you know, Jimmy Page about six or seven feet in front of me, literally playing Stairway to Heaven with his violin bow yeah. on his on his guitar in, <sighs> in, a, in a laser triangle. Right. And just just unbelievable. And we had, there was literally fans trying to get in because they yeah. could hear it, obviously. The word had spread. Um, and they had literally fans holding their phones at the end of the drain pipes trying to record <laughs> it and stuff like that. <laughs> I would. I'd be doing that. Yeah. And then we went to, you know, and then, of course, you know, we had the setup at the O2. And, you know, the night was, I mean, it was, it was, it was an unforgettable night because every single seat, literally up to the rafters, yeah. was full of somebody famous. Yeah. Like every single seat, 
there was no VIP because the entire place was VIP, basically. Yeah. And I had my little digital camera yeah. at that point. So I've got my footage that I shot from the front of house, you know, in that gig. And and I'm going to be honest, because I had to end up doing the final cleanup, as the production assistant always does after everyone's left, you know, and you've got to clean out the rest of the office and stuff, is that I actually still have one of the stage banners up in my attic. <laughs> What's, what's on the stage banner? <laughs> it's the Armoured Ertican Tribute Concerts. Right. Um, stage scrims that they had for that gig. And there was one of them left, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know people listen to this, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Let's talk about, let's let's get into the, to the meat of, let's get into how we, the reason that we met is because you have set up a thing called the Youth Production Network, which is a global initiative, uh, 10 years in the making now. Um, it has opened the doors f- for me personally to of many, many great experiences and obviously uh, skills and um, opportunities for others um, who I'm still friends with now, which is a really cool thing. Nice. But ha- let's get, because I know the story, the inception of the Youth Production Network is utterly remarkable, is so rock and roll. Um, it's, <laughs> it's almost beyond rock and roll. It's sort of God-tier, demigod, deity levels of production management. Just just run us through, run us through that fateful sort of week. I guess it was a week. Was it a weekend? It was over, well, it was supposed to be a 10-day build. So it was, again, it was with Harvey Goldsmith and Jim Baggett. So this is, you know, following, you know, well, it was within a couple of years after this Led Zeppelin and all of all those big shows. And we were called in as part of the international team um, that went over to South Africa to basically um, help produce and direct the um, South African World Cup kickoff concert, which happened in 2010. And basically, it was a very special one-off concert that was um, put in place to mark the occasion of... It was the first time that the World Cup had ever been in South Africa, and it was specifically because of Nelson Mandela. So after Nelson Mandela had you know, been released and was then president from his experience in 1995, where he basically famously supported the Springboks and got behind the rugby in South Africa. And the the Springboks then went and won, you know, the rugby, you know, World Cup, which helped to bring the, the, you know, the country together after all of those years of apartheid. And essentially that was his, you know, that, that was his thing. He saw the power of sport and of music to unite people. And so he put out for the bid, essentially, and effectively bought the World Cup for the first time in South Africa. First time in Africa, full stop, actually. So you had all the, you know, opening and closing ceremonies and all the, 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 the you know, the normal stuff you have around a World Cup. But this World Cup kickoff concert was set very specifically in place to honour Nelson Mandela and to mark this moment. And it was specifically chosen to be in um, Soweto Township purposefully in the big stadium there. Well, it's it's about, I think, 30,000, 40,000 capacity stadium there called Orlando Stadium, which is in Soweto Township in Johannesburg in South Africa. We were called over to work with the on-the-ground production uh, teams there um, and to basically oversee 
and you know and and essentially make sh- deliver this concert to put it on so we had a massive international lineup you know including you know Alicia Cleese the Black Eyed Peas um you know the list just went on and on and on and we also had a huge lineup of uh, African artists, you know, Hugh Masekela, Angelique Kidjo. Um, I mean, it just went on and on, all of the different bands. And out of this huge lineup, for three hours of that, we were going live, live, i.e. we were going live broadcast. It was being broadcast live as it happened out to a billion people around the world. So that was the gig. And of course, there'd never been anything in Orlando Stadium before, anything like that, you know, of that scale of events with the broadcast, you know, setups and all the rest of it. So we land in South Africa and um, very quickly we're told that our 10-day build, because it was a huge, you know, imagine a massive build there to do that, was cut to five days last minute in a long story cut short. And so... Even as we'd landed and I'd gone down to site, um, my job, well, Jim Baggett was the main show director, so he was managing all the stage. Yeah, stuff around the stage, you could sum it up by. Um, And I was there as his site assistant, so my job was to manage all of the backstage areas and everything supporting the stage, effectively. So setting up hundreds of dressing rooms, media areas, all of that, um, but also, uh, you know, running the production office, which then support all of the site builds, you know, that support everything really and the show uh, team as well, the technical team and the callers. So we land in and as soon as I seen, I'd realised they hadn't given me nearly enough crew, not nearly enough, even to do it in 10 days, you know, right. and then it was cut to five and I was like, oh my God, yeah, you know, we've got this huge global broadcast going live, live <laughs> to a billion people in five days, you know, virtually, or it was six or seven days at that point. I need help, yeah. you know, and I got the, you know, the answer, the usual expected answer saying, well, we've got no more budget, you know. So you expected to work a miracle. That's right. It's like literally me and one person or something to set up a four, four you know, um, flawed arena backstage show <laughs> with hunters. I mean, it just was never going to work, you know, at all. So I said, well, this is the World Cup in South Africa for the first time. And I'm stood here looking out to Soweto around me. There must be thousands of young people living right here literally up the road that could just walk here and you know lots of the jobs that i need help with they're not rocket science you know it's setting up furniture putting signage up you know all sorts of different you know crew support so as long as someone is there with a good head on their shoulders and they're you know they're dedicated and they can follow um guidance exactly that's all all we need so i can train them in short we took on about 40 young people from Soweto Township and surrounding townships um, as work experience and brought them on site. And I essentially had trained a whole crew, split lots of them into different teams. So we had different teams working with different departments from sound, lighting, stage, etc. And I had a whole team of about 50 crew who I trained to run the production office two or three days i have to say first day or two i was just like what have i done (laughs) it's like oh my god i'm not sure this is gonna work but then on some way from the beginning of the day to the end of the day you couldn't put your finger on it but something happened on the third day it's like everybody just got it you could just feel it you know when you walked into the production office it was like everyone was just on it and supporting everything 
And in a nutshell, without those 40 crew, um, which were made up of a whole number of young people who'd had either very little event experience or no experience whatsoever, and certainly any young person from anywhere in the world would never have had an experience on that level of production. Mm. You know, it would be very rare to find that anyway. Essentially, without those guys, that whole concert wouldn't have happened. And they were the, they were the complete backbone to that, supporting that huge gig that went on. And lot, lots of people don't realise that. You know, when they watch that show back, you know, when you're watching Shakira performing and all of that, mm. that none of that would have happened without having that backbone crew behind there. Part of the... There was also another young crew of film... Uh, of trainee photographers and filmmakers that also came to site. And so I managed to arrange to have media passes, full access media passes for them. Um, they were a small crew from Soweto. And so they they were able to get into the photographer's pit with all the big international <laughs> press, you know, shooting shooting Alicia Keys and yeah. the Black Eyed Bees and everyone, you know, got in there. Lenses like and telescopes. That's right, yeah. massive. So, that, so they went in as they experienced it as jobbing photojournalists in the thick of it all, you know. Yeah. And the next day, so, I, you know, the, the gig was obviously phenomenal. Um, we managed to put it all off. And I remember one of the crew saying to me, you know, as we're all sat there, the, the audience have left and we're all having drinks, you know, the production office and stuff. And saying, well, obviously this was all amazing, working with the big artists and everything, but said that the most amazing thing is that this is the first time that we felt equal on a site together. And right. that is the most amazing thing that we all, you know, that, that's, right. that's been phenomenal about this. You know, that we're, as you know, the way I teach, we may have different jobs, but we are all equal. We're all needed yeah. to make the whole clockwork run, so to speak. The next day, I got this call, and obviously, I'm horribly hungover and <laughs> extremely <laughs> tired beyond belief, you mm. know, having just done all that. But I got this call quite early the next day, inviting me to join this little photographer and filmmaker crew on a film shoot they were doing in one of the local, one of the kids that were part of the trainee crew in the, where they lived in another township. And so, I, you know, I somehow got myself together <laughs> and managed to get, a, you know, to go down and join them and and, and went into Deep Sweet Township for five hours the next day with them. Right. And um, right into the heart of the township. And we were walking around. We were, they were doing, you know, photo, you know, photo, photography training and stuff like that. And I just had the most phenomenal. It's the first time I've been in a township in my life. Yeah. Now explain explain to anyone that may not understand what you mean by by a township. What's a what does this township look like? Because I know we've we've talked about this place a couple of times, and we did sure. recently. And it's quite. It seems like quite. It's a culture shock, isn't it? Well, that's right. People call it different names around the world. You could call them slums in India, or favelas in Brazil, or townships in South Africa. It's essentially. Most of them actually commonly were formed when there were all sorts of workers historically, you know, for mines. Well, in South Africa's case, it was the mining communities historically 
where all these people came to looking for work and there was nowhere to live. And so essentially they built shanty, they were like huts and shanty towns made up of corrugated iron and, you know, all sorts of whatever materials that could be found at that point to live in. And, you know, they were always only supposed to be temporary, but they never, but they're still here, you know. So the townships are... You know, really, that's that's where they, they why they began in the first place. But they're essentially like a shanty town. So often, there's no running water. There'll be no, um, you know, no bathrooms in in any of in in you know quite commonly in lots of the or some of the areas. And in fact, this is actually a connecting thing. Is that I realised that in some of the areas they would have rows of polyjohns. It's all the festival toilets that we all know and love. You know, that's that's the toilets right. that would support some of the communities. And and I, I hasten to add, especially across, well, from the areas that I know, across Soweto Township, much of so- Soweto Township isn't like that now. Right. You know, there's been massive development and it's more like bungalows, if you like, lots of, you know, um, you know, single level, you know, buildings, if you like, rather than shanties. But in Deep Sleep, where I went, it really was extremely um yeah extremely sort of simple uh setups um a lot of poverty yeah. um and you know yeah it was a huge eye-opener for me and you know what i had the most phenomenal time it was just it was extraordinary and connecting with everyone it was just so amazing and in a way i realized afterwards it was a bit like that festival vibe that we get, right? you know, it's like the site crew fires, the kind of the sense of community when you're in a temporary build somewhere. Um, but it's a bit clearly lots of poverty and, you know, lots of difficulty living there. That night I went back to my, you know, posh hotel that I've been put up in as a crew person, yeah. you know, back to there. And I just, my mind was blown because, of course, I'd seen these crew just on the event site. You know, I didn't realize, you know, or have a, I knew that they came from Soweto and different surrounding areas. But to really go and see where these guys were living and, you know, like some of them were turning up late, for example. There was a few of them were turning up late in the mornings. And I was saying, guys, we must be on time. Just I mean, we've got this huge build going on. And then realizing that actually this certain ones that were maybe 20 minutes, half an hour late every morning, instead of being irritated, realizing that these guys are are having to get these taxi buses that aren't scheduled, that maybe three or four of them to to even get to where the the stadium was. Yeah. You know, and understanding that and realizing, and, and once I understood that, it was like, oh my God. Well, congratulations, you were only 20 minutes or half an hour late, you know, <laughs> realising just how hard it was for them yeah. to even get, you know, from one to the other. And it was that night, literally on the 11th of June, 2010, um, stood there out there on my balcony and my mind was just blown from all of it. And I just knew that there was nothing. These guys were so amazing on site. They still to this day have shown the highest level of professionalism from youth training crews that I have still ever experienced in any show I've ever done around the world now. Mm. And these guys, you know, weren't they needed to be connected. They needed to be connected to other crews around the world. There was nothing for young people at that point to connect internationally at that point. And also they needed some perspective because they had no idea how amazing they were, how good they were, you know, 
to, you know, to, to then connect with others. And so that night, I it literally, I remember it to this day, and I just said it needs to be youth, it needs to be production, that's what's connecting us all here, it needs to be international, and it's not a company, it's a network, it's a space where mm. everyone can connect. And we need on-site support crews, like we'd done at the World Cup, which was on-site training, so not in a classroom, mm. we never train in a classroom, it's always live on-site. The, so the YPN crews have always been somewhere where people could also try things out as well. So they could come and do, you know, a, you know, become, do a day or come and join an artist liaison crew or, a you know, a different type of crew. And there's a two way thing going on there. So it's them trying it out, but it's me trying them out as well, mm. you know, Um and it's from there you can then very easily, you know, see who the natural leaders are. I mean, the, the, the crews that you've put onto the pyramid stage, production crews, lighting, um, uh, what else is there? We've got the kitchens, the crew chiefs, shout out Floyd. Uh, and um, it's just incredible the places that you have been able to insert people who really don't have all that much experience into the biggest, like I've called Glastonbury a logistical masterpiece before because it is just, yeah. everything is a cog, isn't it? And everything yeah. has its place and everything has been designed and and troubleshoot, like troubleshot, whatever the, the expression is, over the years, try, you know, trial and error. It has been refined, it's been, and it's a lean, well, when it's working well, and it, that's most of the time, isn't it? It's a lean, mean machine. And to be able to get someone on the forklift to uh, to or, or you know get so you get these guys coming in and they're wearing their like rigging stuff or whatever, and I'm just like, yes, this is so cool. And you're just talking like Dennis or whatever, you know, and 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 he's telling me about his day working on the pyramid, getting putting the screen together or yeah, you know, cabling or whatever. And I'm just like, and and at the end of the day, people coming back talking about their days, what they've been up to. Some glamorous, some not so glamorous, but that's. You know, that's the way it is. It's just been absolutely incredible. But um The Glastonbury Festival um opportunities are built up of, you know, it's been a lifetime of my history through that, which has enabled, you know, has enabled those positions to be there. And those people, you know, we in twenty nineteen we actually operated the largest ever festival training crew that ever occurred on a on a festival site anywhere and we had over 35 crew solid training crew across five arenas right. you know five areas across Glastonbury it was the yeah it was it was enormous so all of those are phenomenal roles but also the, you know, the washing up roles, which you know very well, Andy, you know, the working for the Eat to the Beat crew, yeah. the reason that we took those on, because we don't do, you know, there's no other festival anywhere at all that we do catering support crew for anywhere. And we normally wouldn't. But the reason we do it there is because it supports the pyramid crew tent, you know, behind the pyramid stage. And that crew tent feeds the people that you're feeding well the people you're working with for a start the eat to the beat crew they're not just any old catering crew they tour with all of the major bands all over the world yeah so these guys know as you know that mm. you know they're incredible individuals to connect with anyway 
and, you know, work on sites and arenas and everywhere. But the people you're feeding in that tent everywhere are probably the highest, you know, level. It's, it's the biggest, most intense level of world-class technicians. It's a unique gathering that happens oh, yeah. that t- every year. Um, so it's a wonderful place to network and also be visible. You know, mm. it's why, as well as wearing, you know, uniforms with a YPN high-vis crew vest, there's a real purpose there. So you can really be seen, you know, as being part of the crew to all these people. It really is incredible who's who's in those. Um, like I've been in there eating before, and and there's Otis who used to do news round, or um, you've got uh, the Radiohead's um, road crew, and they're all characters. As you can tell, the road crew because there's always one of them that's got some ratty dreadlock coming down to his ass. Do you know what I mean? And they're always <laughs> the ones that you're like, oh, you're the you're the most hardcore one. Yeah. Like, you're the one who was there when they were a local band. That's right. And they, and they and they don't have surnames these people. You know, they're called Spike and Mouse and you know stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean I have to thank you again because last time we were there, I mean we did I'm getting confused with my years now because we just wrote a year off, haven't we, with 2020 and um so it just gets me confused when we were last at Glastonbury. Was it 2019, I think? 2019. It was. Yeah. And uh you like I need someone to go and work pyramid crew. Andy, you know, you're going to come with me and we're going to do it. And uh, that was fantastic. I got to roll out, I think it was Hosier's drum kit onto yeah, the pyramid. Yeah, that's right. And I just had to take a moment just to stand there and take it in because I, I might not I might not drum on this stage myself, but I will just take a moment just to just to breathe in. Uh, just enjoy 100,000 people in front of you going yeah, wild, yeah. you know. And yeah. it's a strange one. I mean, a lot of people, I think, will think that's a really scary thing. Um, and it's not, it just, I mean, maybe it is for some, but for me, that just felt, it felt like home. Do you know what I mean? And well, I, I was going to say, it's your natural home, Andy. That's that's why I plucked you out the kitchen <laughs> that day. And I said, Andy, come with me. Don't tell the others. Come with me. Quick. And we ran off straight to the back and I threw you straight into the crew and then suddenly you were loading in on the main stage at Pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. And I was gassing with uh, Janet Jackson's drummer. Just yep. at the back, stood by the drum kit, just admiring it. And camp, probably the biggest drum kit I've ever seen. Just so many cymbals and toms, and, <laughs> and he was like, "It's pretty good, huh?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, what's up?" You know, and then, <laughs> turn out he's Janet Jackson's drummer. I was like, "Okay, yeah. cool." But um, yeah, I yeah. mean, that was a wicked day. And then we watched uh, watched a bit, didn't we, with Jimmy Carr and um, the Killers drummer? I can't remember his name. They were hanging around. They were cool. That's right, up in the viewing platforms. And we get the reason that we get such close access again. That that is because there's a long history of relationship there. Um, because what a lot, well, a lot of the YPN crew don't realise is that before the YPN crew, um, the tours, as you know, that I do. So you've got the crew that are actually working on the stages all the time. But then I always make sure that all the crew that are working for the catering support and are doing washing up and, you know, the behind the stage jobs all get an opportunity to come and join one of my on stage tours. Mm. And because it's, it's because of my relationship with the production crew that we were able to do that because they were never allowed before. So the YPN stage tours are the first time they've ever had or permitted certainly tours ever on the pyramid stage uh, yeah. and the other stage and because 
I know the stage managers and all of the other guys as well, and they know and they know they can trust me yeah. that I can bring a small group and we can, we know how to a move through that space because as you know, what most people don't realise from the front yeah. is actually the what you see from the front is actually only about a quarter of the size of the actual whole stage space, yeah. and and behind there's this enormous huge moving factory of moving parts of hundreds of risers coming in all the kit coming off the trucks at the back onto the risers moving around the performance is going and the risers being pushed off you know you know deconstructed again back on the trucks so and it's and it's a very high pressured um and a global broadcast environment yeah. So if you've got, you know, us and a couple of minions that are tripping up, you know, the uh, <laughs> major ride, you know, the people don't want anyone. That's why no one was allowed in there previously, understandably. They didn't want any anyone messing that around. But because we know how to do it, we coordinate very carefully. The timings that, we're, that we even go up there are very carefully coordinated. And we get to go up to the viewing platforms, which are tucked inside, which you can't see from the audience, but just tucked inside the wings and get that really special uh, view for some of the earlier performances. Yeah, I remember one year we were on um, we were on Evis's private platform watching the yeah. bootleg Beatles. Yeah. And that was so good. And then someone come along and they were like, guys... Uh, Evis is uh, Evis is coming. You're going to go. Time <laughs> to go. Like, okay, That's right. Cool. Thanks very much. I mean, and then yeah. you, you know, and we leave, and yeah. but in a professional way and a, and um, in the right That's way. Right. And it's uh, exactly. I just love it. I love those environments. I love I love being around all that sort of stuff. Like I said before, it's sort of like it's a bit like home. It's like home. Definitely. Um, but uh, definitely. Yeah. So from you know the history of all of the YPN crews that developed over the years. Um, in 2018, I set up my other organisation, which is called Women Walk Together. And that basically, um, you know, YPN obviously supports young people, you know, across the production industry. And Women Walk Together, obviously, you know, supports women within the production industry. And this was set up in place, well, in response to partly my own experience over the years as being a woman in the production industry mm. and for many years being the only woman on site, you know, for, you know, whether I was, you know, even as I sort of developed my levels of responsibility as I went along and I'd be production managing arena shows and I'd still be the only woman on site, you know, within the crews. So partly my own experience through that, um, where you do, you have had like constant bullying constant comments, you know, just all the time, you know, there was always something there. But also the more I then travelled internationally, um, which happened, you know, throughout this time as well, the more I became aware of just how even harder it was for women in other countries as well in the way that they were being treated. And there was a a, a girl who I'd come in contact with called Mariam Mbai Bangora, um, who who came from Guinea, West Africa, who I'd kind of connected with via YPN. And she was the first girl who had a technical qualification within her, for sheet metal work, actually. She used to create these kind of uh, metal con constructions and ran her own company in her community. And very, very long story cut short, she ended up dying um, because of the struggles of being a woman in her community 
And I was absolutely devastated, devastated, um, because she was, I had a picture of her up on my wall at my office for ages. You know, I'd always really proudly talk about her Mm. to so many people. And really, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, And when I heard that she'd passed away, I was so devastated. And I just, you know, just something inside me is saying, look, this is enough, you know, enough, actually, Mm. to all of it, Mm. you know. It's, I've been working in this industry for 20 years now, you know, and still all the time, even when I, you know, I produced the Olympic, uh, the the London Olympic Torch Relay concerts, you know, and even, you know, up at these huge iconic events that I'm directing, producing, show calling, et cetera, still experiencing, um, you know, sort of prejudice, if you like, yeah. around big women. And it was just like enough. So on, in 2018... It was, it marked a hundred years of Nelson Mandela anniversary that year. And the 18th of July, um, which is International Mandela Day, which was his birthday, you know, there was there was all of these um many celebrations going on around that. And I had been working with a group that Mandela sent set up um leading up to that called the Elders. It's a group of ex-retired, so to speak, world leaders and, you know, peacemakers, you know, that work behind the scenes together to try and, you know, support where there's conflict, you know, and to help change humanitarian, you know, situations around the world. And I did an event for them in 2017, the year beforehand. It was a year campaign. It was their 10-year campaign anniversary, an event in Cape Town where we had a walk and a concert in the Cape Town Convention Centre, which featured acts like Hugh Masekela. Um, And after that, he died, in fact. So it was one of the last performances, you know, on that show that I produced for them. And they had this year-long campaign called the Walk Together Campaign, which was all about supporting inspirational, as they called it, sparks of hope around the world so it was all about shining a light on inspirational communities all sorts of different you know individuals groups around the world over that year leading up to the 100 years uh, celebration and I found out about Mariam through that year having done that you know um, event and and so I just we didn't we never planned anything big you know we just I literally started from that thought of like we must do something And instead of talking about it, let's actually do it. You know, let's just demonstrate once and for all, you know, let's not beg and can we please work on event sites and honestly, we're all really good as women, you know, and blah, Mm. blah, blah. Let's just do it. End of conversation, done, you know. So I spoke to some friends around the world in different communities um, that I knew and and one by one, they all joined in, said, yeah, no, we want to do something. We want to do something. And we all all contributing together. Basically, that was the launch of Women Walk Together on the 18th of July in 2018. And we had five female-led events, not big fancy ones, but frontline in frontline communities around the world that happened in South Africa, in Guinea. There was a celebration where Mariam's family came from in her village. In the UK, we had an event in the uh, 100 Club in um in Oxford Street in London and we had an event in Brazil in Sao Paulo and also an event in India in Bangalore 
and we had five events and the anchor event was in South Africa. So I went out to South Africa about six weeks beforehand and went out to work in the townships, which I have done, you know, throughout these last 10 years Mm. and to reach out to um, female communities, you know, female crew who wanted to join in. And so, yeah, so we ran it and I ran it from South Africa and we connected to all of those events on the day. And we did a we did a global live stream, which I ran from South Africa and did the first ever global female production showcase celebrating, you know, Mandela. Yeah. And so that was the whole launch to a new chapter, if you like. And it was along the way that I, you know, met many different people. And one of them was Shanti Anan, um, who is the daughter-in-law of Kofi Annan, who also was leading walks, uh, the Mandela Mile walks, also around that 100-year anniversary. And essentially for the last two years, we kind of joined forces, you know, and Women Walk Together came to join to support Mandela Mile and essentially ran a live stream you know so it was produced the the live stream was produced and facilitated by women walk together for mandela mile and we had a you know a version which we did in 2019 and then of course as we went into 2020 we were going to have a you know i just had all of the um approvals signed off to do a big live event in Trafalgar Square. So that was what was supposed to happen, you know, last July. And of course, then the lockdown happened. So through that, you know, instead, because we couldn't get into studios or anywhere online, I was, you know, and I was in isolation here in Froome like the rest of us. (laughs) But I had my little sound recording unit here, um, you know, which we're partly using right now. And my little... It was about using what you got from where you were, you know, situation. And so basically I started because I've traveled all over the world already. I've connected to all of these places already. I'm actually very used to working remotely, you know, so that's Mm. something that was very natural to come to me. And I also when I'm here, I've already always worked from home. You know, I haven't worked in an office for a long time. So in some senses, the whole I was already set up for working in this way, you know, as everybody had to go online. And I started to do the my first interviews, podcast interviews um, in April um, when we had no other way of doing anything. I said, well, shall I at least, you know, I could interview you at least and we could just put that out, you know, and see where it went. And so in a nutshell, I ended up doing more and more of these interviews with different community leaders um, you know, all sorts of different ages. And I also worked with the Mandela Mile Leadership Programme, which was a community of young emerging leaders from 21 countries around the world who all were, you know, starting up or pioneering some sort of local initiative, you know, from wherever they were. They're all different, but that was their connecting uh, situation. And I then basically created this training, this empowerment training, which which would, I'm now calling it, of using the production skills that we had before, so the recording and the you know the sound engineering and you know the video editing and all of that, but using it in a way to benefit and to support the community. 
So with the training that I did with the leaders, with the leadership program, I developed a three-part training, which was how do I speak? How do I help others to speak? And how do we all speak together? And it was very, very basic, you right. know, because many, many of the uh, individuals I was working with lived in places where they had no mains power, for example, right. or, access, or access to a notepad and a pen in some cases, you know. So it was a real range of environments and resources that, was, uh, that were available in those, you know, environments. So How Do I Speak was based around teaching how to record a video message, you know, and just the best way. To, and it wasn't about learning fancy kit. It was about using what you had to in the best way you could. Mm. So I was teaching stuff like, you know, learning where is your microphone on your phone? Where is the mic? You know, have right. that awareness of, of when you are speaking so that you can, you know, hold realise that actually a close-up is better than having it further away in right. terms of capturing your voice, for example. Yeah. Learning about background noise, you know, the balance of that, but also the way that background noise can tell a whole story about where you are, you know, and everything that that can communicate and, and how to then low, you know, how to then share that message online, you know, how to amplify the voice, the, Mm. the message that you're trying to say out there. And then the, how to help I help others speak was all about interview training. Right. So how to be interviewed, you know, um, and how to interview others, how to give someone else a platform to share their message. Yeah. And then, you know, how do we all speak together was around how do you present as a community of many people, but present as one voice together? Mm. What do we as a community believe or what do we want to say? Or what are our goals? Or what do we need? You know, for example. So what was extraordinary about that was I was initially training them because on a very practical level because you know they were going to be part of the global live stream you mm. know that I was running on Mandela Day so it was like uh, you know aid and a stage by stage support so that they could come and be part of that and and learn about you know what they needed to do what to expect and how to present themselves as part of the global live stream but what really happened along the way was this extraordinary journey of whilst we're learning the basic equipment and the practical side, but this this journey of real self-inquiry that really right. happened. So we had kind of two levels of training that were opening up. You know, first the practical, how do you shoot it? And, you know, and, and, and I was, you know, advise, I realised that pretty much everyone I talked to, no matter where they were, everyone could get hold of a washing line, right? <laughs> everyone could get hold of a washing line wherever you are. Right. And you could at least put some sort of fabric over it. It could be a bed sheet or, you know, uh, or anything yeah. you create to create, exactly, yeah. to create a, a background or also like an acoustic, you know, a, a soft surface. Yes. If you're in acoustically hard rooms and you were getting echoing, you know, stuff like that. So you had the, these things going on, but but the but there's the, the self-inquiry that, that, that I was teaching around that was actually quite extraordinary journey to go on. Right. So it came back to who am I? Yeah. What is it that I even want to say? Yeah. And who is it I'm trying to say it to? And why am I trying to say it? You know, really going back to that. And the same thing of looking, same thing with interviews. You know, what am I asking? Why am I asking these questions? Yeah. What it is that I'm trying to find here? Um, and really, you know, who, what, what are we sharing here? What do we need? Mm. 
And I just saw a, a directly immediate benefit that happened. It was extraordinary through this training where people were literally finding their voice, you mm. know. And you know what it's like when you've thought about something for a long time, maybe, yeah. and, you, and you might have talked to someone about it, but actually saying it, literally vocalising it for the first time, vocalising who you are mm. for the first time, yeah. is actually quite powerful. It's a very powerful process to go oh, through. Oh, yeah. Um, I get this a lot with this podcast is um, the nature of it because they tend to be quite biographical and they they, they, they seem to, a lot of them have a an arc of, of a person's life. Um, sometimes that well, after the podcast, you can see that they're, they're buzzed from it. They have a buzz from it. And I've had people I've interviewed say, hey man, I really ne needed that. Yeah. I didn't realize that talking about what I'd done in my life and what I'd achieved and where I was going really helped me realign with myself and especially last year to, to keep me um, yeah. motivated and to, to remind myself that I actually do get stuff done and I'm valuable and I'm good at what I do. And 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 at other times the, the podcast ends up after the podcast, it almost feels, and this isn't... Um, this this is I don't mean this in a negative way. Sometimes it feels like a counselling session. Yeah. People people continue to share things with me sometimes after the the microphones are off because yeah. because they've been put into this calm relaxed situation where the conversation can go anywhere they want it to, and they're talking about themselves. And I'm at, and sometimes I ask quite prying questions. I try to do it with respect, but. Sometimes I will ask some tough questions that will, like you said, cause a little bit of self, uh, inward, you know, inward thinking and, and, yeah. and to looking at themselves. And yes, I totally, I totally get what you're saying there. Totally, it's been it's been a real powerful thing. Absolutely, and it's it's having that sense of acknowledgement. It's like giving someone really a space where you really are listening to what they say. Mm. And it's extraordinary how many people in the world just don't get that on a daily basis in their lives or they're so busy, you know, looking after everybody else or doing whatever they're doing and stuff. But that moment where really someone is literally there for you yeah. and respectfully holding that space for you to, to really, you know, hear what you have to say is so powerful. So, so the power of interviews, of giving people that platform is you know, you, you can never underestimate that you know, and how it can change people's lives. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you shared with me an interview you did with someone very special who inspired me greatly and moved me quite, whose spirit actually kind of moved me um, a couple of days ago. Um, tell, tell us about, let's, let's, let's wrap up with this because we've been going quite a while now. So let's, let's wrap up with this story because... Although there is, I don't want to say tragedy, although there's hardship in this story, ultimately it's an example of the human spirit prevailing, isn't it? And, yeah. And I, 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 it's such a lush story. I just want, I want you to tell me again and tell the listeners again about this phone interview that you conducted throughout the night via sure. voice notes. Just set that one up for us. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, this really does bring us up to, up to the present now because now moving forward, you know, into 2021, um, you know, I'm now fully focused on Women Walk Together and YPN. So, you know, the, all the other projects I've taken a step back from and now it's really about focusing on the crews because, as you know, the production crews worldwide really are have been suffering and are suffering um, and need that inspiration right now. And so this person, um, this is an incredibly special girl called, uh, her full name is Amu Kalani Kosa, um, but I know we call her Amu. And um, Amu and I are now working together, you know, on these this empowerment training moving forward. But I met Amu, you know, very briefly in 2018. So in that original connection uh, in, in Cliptown and in Soweto Township to pull together the first teams for the Women Walk Together Global Showcase um, was when I first met her. And Amu lives in, she's grown up in Cliptown in Soweto Township. It's, you know, like I say, lots of Soweto is not what people might imagine at all, I would say. It's far more developed and, you know, um, and yeah, far more developed than people might think. But Cliptown is really the very, one of the very poorest parts of that. So this really is, you know, corrugated iron shacks. It's, no mains power, so people taking power from the railway lines, you know, with all sorts of dangerous, you know, connotations there. There's no running water. It's it's a very hard environment. Um, and since the pandemic hit, um, there's, well, over the last, even before that, I would say, they'd had lots of gangs move into the area um, that really just were, there was terrible gang fights going on. And there was a lot of drugs as well around that. So there was like shooting, stabbings, literally imagine how terrifying that is. Mm. That as soon as it turns dark, it's just horrific, you know, so incredibly dangerous, you know, every single night being there. And as the pandemic hits, it's just intensified, mm. you know, and and right now it's, it, you can't imagine how, it's like a war zone really is, you know, living there. And Amu um, was, we were on connecting because the network's so bad, you know, actually for almost a year and a half, we've been communicating via voice notes um, for nearly a year and a half because you can't get a, you know, you could, well, where she was, you couldn't get enough signal to get a decent, even a WhatsApp call, you know, conversation time. So we were sort of used to that um, in a way anyway. And there was one night, you know, through the lockdown last year where everything intensified and I was on communication to her and she basically was pretty much cowering in a bed, listening to gunshots um, flying past her shack. Um, Her family had had to evacuate. People were evacuating out of the area. And, you know, quite honestly, I didn't know whether, you know, she was going to make it through the night. It was it was just absolutely horrific. And we I'd started doing the podcast interviews, you know, by that point. Um, and we'd already talked about doing an interview, you know, mm. together um, and her representing as a women walk together. She is the women walk together, South African, you know, production crew chief, you know, mm-hmm. on on the ground there. So we were going to do a live report, you know, with her. 
And this night was getting so terrible. All I could do was just to keep being with her, just keep being live on the other end, keep sending messages, because essentially she was just totally on her own, you know, and having to survive through this night. And, you know, I was thinking, well, as soon as it's daylight again, she couldn't move at all whilst it was dark, but whilst it was daylight, we would make moves to evacuate her out. And so it was under these conditions, I said to her, you know, partly to sort of give her something to do, you know, or give us something to do, something Mm. to focus on whilst you're kind of waiting out the night, really. And I said, let's record an interview together. Let's do that. And so we just did it bit by bit where I would record a question on a voice note, one question per voice note, and she would listen and then record an answer per voice note and, you know, sent them all over. And essentially, we pieced them all together. So again, this is the YPN Audio Army um, mm. working with me to piece these all together to to create this interview. And it was really Amu's message to the world, you know, about who she was, who she is, you know, what was really going on, and her message to the world. And as you know, it just, it absolutely floored me, you know, what Mm. she actually said, being in the middle of that, being in the middle of gunfire, you know, in the middle of absolute poverty, you know, of where she was, brought such an incredible message of love, of saying she wants everyone to know themselves, you know, she wants everyone to connect and to support um, in the middle of that, just blew my mind. And I'm I'm happy to say that we did, you know, support in evacuating her out and um, we've continued to support and work with her. So Amo and I talk every day and we're now working with another one of the original YPN World Cup pioneers, uh, Wiseman, an amazing now award winning documentary maker. And the three of us are. Um, now working with local communities across South Africa to continue this empowerment training and the, you know, the interviews. Yeah, it just... Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. That was my guest, Rachel Hockey. If you want to find out more about Women Walk Together, the Youth Production Network, or, or maybe any other things that may have been mentioned that I may have missed in this podcast, then you will find those in the show notes descriptions. Make sure you like, subscribe, and review this podcast if you can. It really, really helps us out, really helps us grow. Please tell a friend, tell one friend if you can. That would be great. If you want to follow the show on Instagram, it is at the giant pod. I'm pretty sure that's the same for the Twitter as well. And if you want to follow my Instagram, it is Andy underscore S1S. From one production manager to another this week, this show was produced by Harry Williams. We will see you next week on the giant pod. Thanks very much. <laughs>